Hello and welcome to Discussions on Tunbridge Wells, a podcast from the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. My name is John McGann and I'm a psychologist in the centre. This week we're talking about hearing voices and having beliefs that others may find strange, experiences which often go by the name psychosis or perhaps schizophrenia. In March this year, in a public lecture here at Salomon's, Anne Cook, editor of a British Psychological Society report on this subject, was joined by filmmaker John Richardson to talk about psychosis, how we understand it and how we hold hope in the face of such a diagnosis. John talks pretty graphically about his own experiences in this talk, both as he has experienced both psychosis and hospitalisation. Uh, this talk was part of a series we've been hosting here, and we've recorded a number now, and are hoping to get them out soon. For now, though, here are Anne Cook and John Richardson on understanding psychosis. Evening, everybody. Um, my name's uh, Anne Cook. I'm a member of staff here. Um, this is... I, sh- I thought I should probably tell you, I don't know whether you know where you are um, and what this place is because it's relatively new even those of you who live in Tunbridge Wells. Uh, the Salomons Institute for Applied Psychology, we were the centre, we institute as of last week I think, um, so we've gone up in the world. So we are a, a part of Canterbury Christchurch University, the main campus obviously is in Canterbury, um, but we major here in training of clinical psychologists for the NHS and also um, cognitive behaviour therapists for the NHS, so it's all postgraduate on this site. Uh, But we do work closely with our psychology colleagues um, in Canterbury. Uh, this is when, uh, this is Jo Brown, you probably recognise her. She is actually an honorary doctor of our university because you probably know she was a mental health nurse. Um, and this is, um, this picture was taken just over a year ago when she opened this building. In fact, we had the party in this very room. It was a very jolly occasion, as you can see. Um, and I, I was just saying to John, uh, the most proud moment in my life was when I actually made her laugh. And uh, this guy here is the vice chancellor of our university. Um, And yeah, as Jodie said, uh, today is part of a series that we're doing of uh, what we call public engagement talks. Public engagement is sort of university speak for doing things that you invite the public to or to um, address the public, not just your own students. Part of the reason that we're doing these talks and part of the reason that we do all our kind of public facing work is we're trying to make available good quality information about our topic that we're interested in which is mainly mental health related things and uh, as you can see and as you probably know already uh, the standard of media coverage in the UK generally of uh, mental health is abysmal I would say. Um, The Sun, uh, not not that I'm necessarily implying that you're all Sun readers, but it is the biggest selling newspaper in the UK and this is the kind of mental health coverage that you often get. So we want to do something about that because because we work in mental health we know that these kind of of headlines are misrepresenting what really goes on, misrepresenting people. Yeah, my particular topic and obviously the, my interest and the topic of today is the experiences that we often call psychosis or schizophrenia. So just thinking about the kind of information that's available on the internet, I googled schizophrenia patient and these are the, well this is exactly what I got, this is the results of the search and uh, it's not exactly, I mean, imagine if you're seeing that just having been diagnosed yourself with schizophrenia, it's not going to be very helpful is it? So yeah why does this matter? Um, I guess it matters mainly because 
it affects real people. Um, I don't know, did anybody see this uh, documentary on Channel 4, Stranger on the Bridge? Uh, it's really worth watching on Catch Up if you didn't. It's about this guy here, Johnny Benjamin, um, and it, it's a kind of autobiographical film. And the story is um, that he was depressed and went to throw himself off one of the bridges in London. And a guy sat down next to him and talked to him for about half an hour and eventually persuaded him not to jump and then disappeared. And a, a bit later, Johnny decided that he wanted to find the guy and say thank you. So there was a big social media campaign. Some of you might have seen it called Finding Mike because he gave him his name, Mike. So eventually he found him. He, he you know, looked and looked and he found him and his name was not Mike, obviously. It was Nathan, actually. But anyway, um, and that, that's what the film is about, about them getting together. And it was it's a lovely film. But one of the things that I think is a bit glossed over in the film is the reason that Johnny was depressed in the first place. And one of the reasons um, was that he'd recently been given a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And obviously, what did that mean to him? Well, it meant to him the kind of thing that he'd been, he read in the papers. And this is actually a quote from him. All I knew was what I read in the papers, that people with schizophrenia are violent and incapable of recovery. So that's partly why he was feeling so desperate. So that's kind of why we do it. it there's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of Johnnies around the country. Um, just before I go on to the specific topic of psychosis, just to tell you a little bit more about the, uh, the other kind of public information that we have available out of here. Uh, one of the things is, I don't know how many of you have looked at this, this is our blog called Discursive of Tunbridge Wells, get it? Uh, pardon the pun. Um, it's on the university website, as you can see, but we have a lot of pieces um, by, some by quite eminent people. I don't know if you've heard of this psychologist, Richard Bentall, who's quite famous within psychology circles. Uh, he writes for us and a number of other big names, but also our students, uh, the staff, us ourselves, um, all kind of controversial topics in mental health. There's many, many blogs on there now. And some of them, you know, some of them are quite popular. The, the one, this is, this is one that uh, Richard Bentall wrote about Stephen Fry, and I think it's had something like 300,000 hits, which is, you know, more than a newspaper. So anyway, um, that's something you can look at if you're interested in these topics. Um, we've recently, recently branched out into podcasts, which is great fun. And we've, we found here that um, within this, between the staff and students, we were having very interesting sort of lunchtime conversations about mental health, and we kind of thought we should perhaps record these and put them on the internet because you know, they're interesting conversations. So that's basically what the podcasts are. It's slightly more structured than that. Um, but, you know, here's one, um, does therapy do you good? All, again, all kinds of controversial um, topics in mental health. So if you're interested in psychology and mental health, have a look at that. And finally, um, and this is getting towards the topic of tonight, um, we've been very interested in, um, very involved in collaborating with the British Psychological Society to produce what they call public information reports. And I've been involved in all of these. There's three of them. Well, actually, this one doesn't exist yet, Understanding Depression, which is, you can probably tell, it's a bit of a mock-up. Um, but that's due out later this year. Um, Understanding Bipolar Disorder came out back in 2011, actually, and I was, I was involved in that. Um, but the, the one that I've been most involved with um, is this um, book here, Understanding Psychosis and Schizophrenia, which probably took over three shouldn't say too much to this, members of my family in the audience, but took over a, a large number of years of my life. Um, 
And basically, it's an attempt to produce good quality public-facing information about a topic where there is so much misinformation. Um, if you are interested after today in reading it, you can do that two ways. Um, that's the URL, understandingpsychosis.net. Tried to make it easy to remember. And I've written up there on the flip chart, if you want, there are a few, I've got a few hard copies here actually, and my office is next door and I've got a few more. So if, if anybody wants one afterwards, do come up and ask. Um, but if you want one after that, you can get them free from the British Psychological Society. And that's the address there, member network services at bps.org.uk. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, there were uh, 24 contributors. We've basically brought together people who do research in the area of psychosis and schizophrenia um, from the whole UK. So. Um, as you can imagine, it was a bit like herding cats. 13 of these people are professors, and somehow we had to all agree uh, as, as what to say in the book. Um, so I think there were eight universities involved and three NHS trusts, and also a number of people who had themselves experienced psychosis. So it was quite a work. Okay, so getting up away from the kind of background of public information onto the topic of what is psychosis and I'm going to come on to how we define it in the book uh, but just to tell you a bit about the book first um, it's in these these different um, sections part one is all about what is psychosis part two why do so many people have these experiences and when do they become distressing because obviously you well not obviously but it is possible to have the experiences that we call psychosis without necessarily being distressed by them uh, a lot of, there's a lot of people who hear voices, for example, who don't find that particularly distressing, particularly if they're in an environment which is accepting of that. So, for example, uh, one of my students here did some research in Brighton where there's a lot of interest in the paranormal uh, and there were a lot of people who, there who heard voices and were very happy about hearing voices um, and a lot of them identified as mediums and not only they identified as mediums but the people around them also called, accepted that they were mediums and would even pay them money. So you can see that it's not always necessarily a bad thing. So we in the book, we try and um, separate out the experiences themselves from distress because they don't always go together. The third part, part three, is about what can help. So in medical language, that would be treatment. Uh, part four, what we need to do differently. That's both within services, everybody individually and as a society. Oh, sorry. Finally, I, sh I shouldn't um, gloss over it because it took a long time and I think it's hopefully one of the most useful bits of the book. There's a whole section on useful books and websites. Okay, so this is where I come back to the question I just asked you. The problems we call psychosis or schizophrenia, what do they include? Well, there are, it's a list of experiences, really. Hearing voices, believing things that other people find strange, or acting in ways that they find strange, or appearing out of touch with reality. So, yeah, it's a list. That's how we define it, anyway. Um, but I think the important thing to note here is these are experiences. We're not, there are no independent tests that can tell you what causes these experiences. And there are, in fact, a number of theories about it. And it's likely to be different for different people. I think there's often um, an assumption that um, you can do some kind of brain scan or blood test and show that you have schizophrenia. It's not the case. It's defined by um, the experiences that people describe to clinicians. Here is somebody describing his experience to his GP. 
So he's maybe uh, telling her that he hears voices, or, for example, or that uh, he believes something and she's thinking, this sounds a bit strange. I, I believe there's an alien implanted in my chest, for example. Uh, and she may be writing in her notebook, you know, possible diagnosis schizophrenia. Um, but actually, um, she doesn't know anymore that he is telling her. Because um, schizophrenia is defined in a circular way. Why does my son hear voices? Because he has schizophrenia. How do you know? Because he hears voices. So these are just ways of talking about certain experiences, if you like, relabeling them rather than a diagnosis in the usual term that you might think of a diagnosis, actually telling you something about the cause. Oh yes, these experiences are quite common. Possibly up to one in ten of us have heard a voice at some point. It's really common when you've been bereaved to hear the voice of the person that's died. Really common, for example. Uh, yes, they're often a response to things that happen in our lives, and that might be an example. Hello, I've just seen somebody from my yesterday's talk. Sorry, you had a very similar talk yesterday, didn't you? Sorry about that. <laughs> Um, there's also no clear dividing line between normal experiences and psychotic experiences. So, for example, um, the, this person in the picture, uh, the, the GP is making some kind of a judgment as to whether she thinks the things that he's describing, say, you know, say an alien's been talking to him. If she happens to believe in aliens, then she might think that that's normal. Uh, she probably doesn't, because GPs don't tend to. So she's probably starting to think, hmm, is this person psychotic? So there's no clear dividing line. It's a matter of judgment. So calling these experiences symptoms of mental illness, which is the way that we talk about that in, this, in our society currently, mostly, is only one way of thinking about them not the only way. It does have some advantages thinking of these experiences as an illness. So for example, um, I mean they're very difficult things to talk about and also can be very distressing experiences. So we need a way within society of thinking about them, a language to talk about them in and a way of offering help. So currently within our uh, current system, that's a medical system, so we usually offer people help within the framework of doctors, nurses, hospitals. Um, so it allows, yeah, uh, uh, the idea of illness allows people to get help in the shape of, for example, medication, which a lot of people find helpful, um, some kind of counselling, um, and also taking time off sick, because because these experiences can be so distressing and disabling for some people that they can't work. So we need some kind of a framework that allows people to take time off sick if they need it. Um, but of course it does also have costs, as the Johnny Benjamin story uh, tells us. Um, and it has, uh, there's, there's some other costs as well, um, in the sense that um, whenever you focus in one direction, uh, you are inevitably focus less on other things. And to invite people to see things through a lens of illness does encourage us to look in, inside people's heads for the source of the problem, and perhaps not so much at the events and circumstances of people's lives. Uh, and that might be a problem because we do know, uh, there's good research that um, these experiences are, people who have these experiences are much more likely than others to have had difficult life experiences in the past of various sorts. Uh, and arguably just thinking, oh, saying, oh, the person's ill, um, you ri ri risk neglecting those things and not looking at them. So this is what we conclude in the report. Some people find it useful to think of themselves as having an illness, 
but others prefer to think of their problems as, for example, an aspect of their personality, which sometimes gets them into trouble, but they wouldn't want to be without. Uh, and basically, uh, we, this is what we um, conclude. Professionals should not insist that people accept any one particular framework of understanding. And that's actually, it doesn't sound very radical, but in the context of a mental health service, which is predicated on the idea that everybody is ill who comes in here, that's kind of the idea it operates with, it's actually quite a radical statement. Uh, has anybody heard of this organisation, the Hearing Voices Network? Uh, we worked a bit with them um, when we were doing our report. One of our contributors was from that, in fact two were from the organisation. The organisation is predicated, it's a self-help organisation for people who hear voices, and it's predicated on that idea that there are a number of um, reasons that people hear voices, a number of explanations that people have. Some people uh, think their voices are um, God speaking to them, for example. Other people understand them as um, yeah, a, a symptom of mental illness, for example. Uh, other people don't know, and that's okay. Um, there's no attempt by, the, by anybody else to kind of say your explanation is wrong and mine is right. So that's very, again, quite radical in the, con the usual context of the mental health service. Um, yeah, the reasons somebody might experience psychosis are as complex as the reasons for any other, com any other human experience or behaviour. Um, I think that's, it's an, in, another danger with thinking only within an illness framework because it invites us to kind of think in a very technical way about causes. So I call it the Ford Cortina model. So it's sort of like you expect to be able to open the bonnet and find the bit that's gone wrong and fix it. Um, and actually human beings aren't like that, uh, neither with these experiences nor with any other kind of complex human experiences. And the way I like to illustrate this, I call this the gin and tonic example. We can probably talk about it later in the pub. Um, but uh, the question is, why is this woman laughing too loud? Um, and those of you who are doing psychology at A-level, for example, you know that there are, um, hopefully you know that there are a number of of kind of ways that you can explain behavior. You can explain it in a biological way, uh, you can explain it in a psychological way. So biological ways to do with you know what's happening in your brain, psychological ways to do the way that you see the world, the way you're thinking, or a social way in terms of you know your social environment. And uh, I think in this you could do any of those things in this example, um, but actually probably all of them are going on. So uh, this is the first date. Um, so you could, you could have a, so, a, um, a social explanation of um, why she's laughing too loud. In other words, it's her expectation. It's a pub, it's their first date, that's what you do. You laugh and you have a good time. It's a social explanation. Or you could have a psychological explanation. You know, she really likes him. Uh, so she's really, you know, um, trying a bit hard to impress. Um, so she's laughing too loud. Uh, or you could have a physical, a biological explanation. I mean, this is actually her sixth gin and tonic. Um, or, of course, it could be a genetic explanation. This is always my particular excuse that, you know, she's just got a genetic predisposition to laugh too loud. Um, so, but actually, probably all of those things are going on. Um, and actually, when I gave this example yesterday in another lecture at Canterbury, one of the students, I don't know if it's you, somebody said to me, ah, also, Who's making the judgment that she's laughing too loud? It could be fine. So that's another element to it. I thought, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, okay. Um, important to recognize that for some people, psychosis can be lifelong and life-changing. 
Um, but for many people, the experiences are short-lived, and that doesn't go with this kind of general narrative that we have that, you know, people get told you have schizophrenia, it's a progressive brain disease, the only thing you can do about it is keep taking the tablets for the rest of your life, and it's a bit of a hopeless message. And it's really not the case for everybody, because a lot of people recover. So, yeah, other people find ways of understanding and responding to them, to their experiences, a bit like I was talking about the Hearing Voices Network, that enable them to leave successful and happy lives. So, for some people, the experiences stop, and for others, they carry on, but they find a way of living happily with them. There's a lot of racism when we talk about schizophrenia. <coughs> you probably know this. Even if they describe exactly the same experiences, black people are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia, get a worse deal in mental health services. Uh, there's definitely racism in services. Uh, yeah, medication. Don't worry, John, I'm nearly finished. Um, medication. We're not anti-medication. Many people find medication helpful. Um, but not everybody does. And we're, we also think, well, the evidence suggests that there's no evidence that it corrects an underlying biological abnormality. Sometimes people get told, you know, you have schizophrenia, it's caused by a chemical imbalance, this drug will rectify that chemical imbalance. There's no evidence for that, it's just a story. Um, all we know is that pe some people take these tablets and they find them helpful, fine. We don't actually know they're rectifying any kind of imbalance. That's a theory. <coughs> yeah, the other thing we say is, is psychological therapies are helpful for many people, talking, talking treatments. For a long time there was a myth that you know there's no point talking to somebody with psychosis. Um, in fact, it was discouraged within mental health services. Yeah, more generally, it's vital that services offer people the opportunity to talk in detail about their experiences and make sense of them. That's, you know, if you and I get admitted to a psychiatric hospital, that's probably what we are looking for and expect, but unfortunately it's not always what happens. So yeah, our conclusion, services need to change radically. And we need to invest in prevention by taking measures to reduce abuse, deprivation and inequality. As I was saying, there's a lot of evidence that these things are correlated with psychosis. But when we think about prevention, if you look in the kind of medical, uh, the professional literature about prevention, it's often about, you know, spotting symptoms early and medicating people. That's not what we're talking about in terms of prevention. So, yeah, just to say very briefly before I hand over to John, um, something about the reaction we got, because we got a lot of reaction when we published this. The first version was published in 2014 and a new one in 2017. Um, a lot of media coverage. I was even interviewed by John Humphreys on the Today programme, which was a bit scary. Um, and some coverage in the newspaper, even across the pond in the New York Times. I like this headline, Redefining Mental Illness. Um, this is Luciana Berger, who was a Shadow Minister for Mental Health. She got a copy and took a copy for, copies for her team. Um, but actually more important to me was all the letters that I got from people who said that they had helped them personally. Uh, like this one, this is the first thing I've read that's given me hope. That was lovely to, brought a tear to my eye I have to say. Okay, thank you very much. Um, over to John. So I'm just going to acknowledge I've got a much easier job this evening than Anne because I'm just here talking about myself, which is much easier, I feel. Um, no, I'm okay in the dark. That's right. Yeah, that's my natural environment. By that, I mean I'm someone who's experienced this thing we're calling psychosis. 
so I'm kind of your specimen for the evening. Um, now I'm going to use the words crazy and madness a little bit in reference to myself because I feel like those are words that I've needed to embrace through this whole thing. By using those words referring to myself, I'm stopping other people from being able to use those words against me. So to offend me, they'll have to kind of call me four eyes or insult my fashion sense or something. <laughs> and as well as that, I'm kind of disavowing this idea that there's these normal people and there's these crazy people over here and there's no in between. So I'm going to pick up where the film left off. And that is about kind of how I was, how my experience was responded to by people around me and mental health services. After that, where I was laying on the floor trying to get some sleep, an ambulance turned up and I'm, I'm not going to get in the ambulance because I've seen one flew over to Cuckoo's Nest and I know where they're going to take me. <laughs> so the, the police had to come. Didn't want to go with them either. I was on the street at this point and there's people walking past, quite a few people, and I'm kind of desperately pleading with them to agree with me that I'm not crazy. And of course, they all agreed and quickly scuttled away. <laughs> so eventually, after a kind of one-hour standoff with the police trying to talk me into the van, they gave up and handcuffed me, took off my glasses and shoved me in the back of the van. So I, I, I quite literally went kicking and screaming and that felt like I was being treated a bit like an animal, it made me feel subhuman and quite kind of persecutory, like I was a kind of thought criminal that what must be going on in my mind must be kind of illegal or something, just because it's the police taking me. And the police, they put my camera into a police evidence bag which on the one hand, I'm a filmmaker, so that's kind of, I feel like something to cross off the bucket list, because it's kind of edgy. <laughs> but um, it didn't make me feel safe. It felt like I was kind of under a criminal investigation for some reason, like there might be a murder filmed on this camera or something like that. There wasn't, just to reassure you. <laughs> um, so the next thing, I'm in hospital and the first thing I remember after waking up from the tranquilizers they gave me um, was I, I've got to get out of this place. So I tried to incite a riot on the wards. Um, <laughs> not in a kind of let's start a bunch of fires and a bunch of fights. All I did was I went around to all of my fellow patients in there and said in five minutes let's just all start ripping up the leaflets, all the leaflets. <laughs> No one reads them anyway, really. But, um, so the alarms went off in the hospital and I snuck my way into the ward manager's office and demanded that he let me out and agreed that I wasn't crazy, which was very, very, very counterproductive. <laughs> um, because then they put me on a, a higher section, which means that they can legally keep me in this place against my will for longer. Um, and obviously at this point, I'm, I'm really angry because I'm being held in this place for reasons I don't agree with against my will. And I've, I think most people would be a little bit peeved at that. Um, so yeah, just a kind of pro tip, never try and convince anyone that you're not crazy just agree, because the more you try and convince someone that you're not crazy, 
the more crazy you look. And don't get me wrong, this place is not like a kind of prison, because in prison, you have a general idea of when you're going to get out of there. This place, you, you don't have that at all. So I was stuck in this place that I didn't want to be, and I was full of energy. I felt like a kind of caged animal. And I needed a kind of uh, vessel for all of these ideas I had in my head and a way to get all this energy out. So I'm a little bit mischievous, generally, at the best of times. The staff, they have fresh newspapers every day. So I got to one of these newspapers before any of the staff did. And I thought I'd make a little collage. So I cut out all of the eyes from the newspapers and uh, I stuck them on a piece of paper somehow. And it gave this quite beautiful cartoonish moment where one of the nurses, they, they, they went to pick up the newspaper to read it and then they just kind of looked straight through it like, ah. But that kind of meant, obviously, I was obsessed with eyes. And that meant I was a paranoid schizophrenic, obviously. But if they'd have let me have some pens and paper, like I was asking for, maybe they would have just given me the regular old vanilla schizophrenia without the paranoid bit. But who knows? So I'm going to take a little pause from my narrative for a second and just kind of bring up this idea of madness and what it actually means, because that's something I spent a lot of time thinking about. And I kind of think it means nothing at all because it's a very subjective thing and it's something that varies quite wildly across history and across different cultures. So, for example, in this country, they will section you for believing you're Jesus. But in Nigeria, you'll hear cases where people are sectioned because they don't believe in Jesus. And if you just, just think about this for a second. So if you see someone dressed as Santa Claus in December, that's pretty normal, right? But in the summer, you see someone dressed as Santa Claus, that's a bit, I think that's a little bit weird, right? Even if it's Boxing Day, it's a little bit weird. <laughs> or another one, if you see someone on the bus and they're singing out loud, they're having a great time in their own little world, you think, well, this guy's a bit of a weirdo, isn't he? But if you see someone, and if people who drive, they probably all do this anyway. You see someone in a car and they're singing to themselves in the car, it's like, you go, girl. <laughs> or if I'm drinking wine and I, I believe that it's some dead guy's 2,000-year-old blood, that's all right, as long as it's in church. That's all right. <laughs> so what I'm asking there is the kind of, what's the actual difference between what we think of as crazy or mad and kind of social deviancy or not conforming to society's conventions? Um, because I think it's how the world responds to you when you're going through something like this, when you're in a quite extreme state of mind, makes a lot of difference to how you feel about yourself and how you come out or if you come out the other side. So in hospital, for me, it was all kind of, you've got to take your medication, John, and you can't have the pool cues because you're mental patients and you might hit each other with them. And why have they got the pool table? Who knows? That's above my pay grade. Um, so after I was discharged from the hospital, 
I tried to go back to university, which didn't go very well because all of the members of staff, all of the lecturers, and even the guest lecturers, they were informed about my situation. I didn't, I, no one ever told me what they knew or who told them what, but it was quite weird for me. So I'd walk into a room and a guest lecturer would be like, oh, it's you, I've heard about you. So, <laughs> what, what have they heard? <laughs> but yeah, so that was strange. And that, all of those kinds of things, they, they made me feel more and more alienated from the world and people and uh, I gradually isolated myself away from the world and everyone around me. And that the, the medication I was on, quite a few different types at the same time, left me feeling very empty inside and I, I quite strongly feel that it took away the creative side of me and that's the part of me that one of the only parts of me that I've ever actually liked about myself and one of the only parts of me that I've ever felt gave me a purpose in the world or that I could give or use to give to the world in a way. So I tried to kill myself at that point. It's not a spoiler to say that it didn't work out, so I'm here. <laughs> but at that point I, I didn't want anything to do with mental health services or people that work in mental health services because of the way that I was treated in hospital. I viewed this entire system through this hospital. But eventually I'd, I'd sunk so low that I had nowhere else to turn but to try and engage with mental health services because I needed some help. Um, and I'm kind of glad I did because I got a very good early intervention in psychosis service and they really saw the kind of strength in me and helped build up my confidence again and, get, and really gave me the, the chance to be able to talk to someone and for them to actually listen and without judgment. And that's something that very few of us get in life, regardless of our situations and something I think we, we all really need as human beings. And it took some work, but I'm a fairly functional member of society now, I think. Touchwood. <laughs> so the final thing I wanted to say was that psychosis, for me, it wasn't something that was as simple as I suffered from it. Sometimes I tell that to someone, I say, I've been through this thing, and they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. So sorry. Like I've just told them my dog died or something like that. It's not really as simple as that for me. It was something that was full of meaning and it, it kind of let me scream things that I'd never even been able to whisper before. And it felt euphoric, enlightening, validating. And those are feelings that people have to pay for a lot of the time. By that, I mean it was like doing all of the drugs at the same time. But obviously, don't do drugs. Unless the government says it's okay. God trust the government. <laughs> so yeah, it might sound strange to, to hear me say that I don't regret having gone through this at all. It taught me a lot about myself, about my mind and where it can go, and about life in general, I think.
But most of all, it's taught me that reality, this thing we call reality, it's not something that's one size fits all. It's not the same for everyone. We're all kind of in our own little bubbles of reality because we all perceive the world differently. And that's what makes society a good thing, I think. We're all kind of different. Um, so it's not one size fits all reality. And I think neither, neither is hope. And that's something we need a lot more of, particularly in mental health services, but everywhere. And I personally don't think that in mental health services, hope is going to come through some sort of scientific breakthrough or some new magical drug or some government task force or even a smartphone app. I believe it is going to come through the stuff that keeps us human. Compassion, humility and unity, which may or may not be harder than developing a smartphone app, but we'll see. That's it, thanks. Mm -hmm. <laughs>